0: Log Talk
1: Radio
0: I stroll through the picture What I've left behind You won't forget I'm, locked, I'm up locked up in memories They all intertwine The memories living In my mind I know tomorrow Cause that zone will come You will never know what you Let's see. Uh-huh.
1: Uh.
0: It was after the rehearsal that she was stalked and then overpowered by a criminal who held her prisoner for hours, raping and assaulting her. Eventually, he left, and she survived the attack, unlike three of his other victims, who he brutally murdered in cold blood. Eventually, he was executed for his crimes. Prior to the assault, she was on the verge of creating a successful career in contemporary Christian music. A few months later, she was left disabled after a nearly fatal car crash. She jokes that when those in the know in the music business told her it was just a matter of time till she had a hit. She had no idea it would come from a pickup hitting her at forty five miles an hour, shoving her little Mustang forward and sideways into oncoming traffic. Eventually she started over and thought she would build a life, even if it wasn't the one she dreamed of, graduated from broadcasting school and began working in radio. She met someone, but the man of her dreams was actually the creator of nightmares and she became the victim of domestic violence. When her miracle daughter was three, they went underground after he threatened her life and eventually they moved to a place where they knew no one. Wanting to help others, she was certified as a victim advocate that because of disabilities was unable to work in shelter. Because of her acts, to periodically go looking for them and arrest them, she got online seeking support and began to heal. Well, thank you so much, Ms. Victoria.
2: Okay. Hi, Ms. Clarissa. Thank you for joining us. Hi there. I'm happy to be here. <clears throat> we're, we're honored to have you on tonight, and we really cannot wait to hear your story. I know there are a lot of different moving parts to your story. So normally we like to just start, you know, in the early stages of your life. Um, I know you're saying here that you're from Seattle, Washington. That's where you grew up? Yes, it Mm is.
1: I'm one of those rare people that... Oops, sorry.
2: (laughs) No, go ahead. You're one of those weird people that... What were you going to say?
1: I'm one of those rare people that is a third-generation Washington native. So my Mm. great-grandparents came out here in a covered wagon. (laughs)
2: Okay
1: That's nice
2: Nice piece of history So now um, So you grew up there Did you grow up there with both of your parents What was that part of your life like Did you have both of your parents Were they married What was the Um, situation
1: there Sure I had Both of my parents And I have three siblings And so we grew up Kind of in western Washington Okay
2: Three siblings, nice.
1: Okay, were you a middle child, or were
2: you the oldest? or no, I'm the oldest. <laughs> okay, okay. So, um, you know, here it says that you were raised in a home filled with domestic violence. Did your parents fight a lot at home? Was it your um, family member? Was it your parents? Where where did the domestic violence come in in the early part? No.
1: In my case, it was my parents. Um, mm-hmm. My mom was the primary aggressor, and which is a little backwards from what we typically mm-hmm. think of when we think domestic violence. But mm-hmm. it goes back multiple generations on her side of the family, and it was a mess. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very difficult Many of us to survive.
2: Mm-hmm. Many of us can relate to that, what you're saying there. So was your mom. Do you remember seeing her get angry, like what typically would set her off, your mom?
1: Anything or nothing. Sometimes you never knew what was going to do it. Other times, you know, I was the kind of kid that I always tried to be perfect because I knew if I was perfect, there wouldn't be anything that they could say about it. And Mm -hmm. I thought that that would be enough to be okay. But just like domestic violence as an adult, what typically happens is it's their problem. It's not the victim's problem. And Mm
2: -hmm.
1: what happens is we don't always know what set them off. Just something did. And that was enough to cause a really bad situation. Mm Right.
2: So was your dad, um, what did you notice about your father
1: with his temperament? Did he try to calm her down? He would try. There was not a whole lot that he could do. Um, My parents married very young. And as I said, my mother did not have a good background to be able to do what she needed to be able to do. Um, never learned how to parent. And in the wisdom of somebody who's now in my 60s myself with a child of my own, I can look at that and I can say, yes, she had none of the tools she needed. And with the situation she came out of, it was not possible for her to come out of where she came out of and be healthy. It wasn't going to happen. My dad, when they married, they married very young, and my dad spent a lot of time at work. He actually worked on the (laughs) moonshot, the original Apollo moonshot, and spent many hours. uh, You know, he was working sometimes 18-hour days, seven days a week for months. And so I spent a lot of time with my mother and her parents, which was not a good situation at all. Um, that's where a lot of that abuse came from, and her dad sexually abused me from the age of five. So, yeah. her dad not a your, good situation. Um, her dad, you're talking about your grandfather. I'm talking about my mother's father, yes. I yeah, don't refer to him as a grandfather. I okay. just can't. <laughs> my
2: apologies. I understand. I'm sorry. I was trying to make sure that I got the who the person yeah. was. And yeah. so when did this, do you remember, like, what age you were
1: when you started going at, through that abuse with him? Uh, so far as I know, I remember it at about age 5 hmm mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Did you tell anyone? Did you tell your parents or anyone? Yeah, I attempted. Nobody would listen. You know, it's frustrating because, you know, we tell kids to, if something's going on, tell a trusted adult. And a lot of the time when they tell that trusted adult, nothing happens. Oh, yeah. Especially back in the
2: days. Yeah. Right. So, did you tell your mom, or did you tell your dad, or who did you tell? To, who did you trust to tell first?
1: Was it a sibling or parents? Uh, it was parents, and that did not work. And I found out later that part of the reason it didn't work was because my mom had been through the same thing. Okay, and mm-hmm. she never dealt with it herself, and so she was in total denial. And Mm -hmm. it meant bad things for me because I had no protector. Right.
2: Did you ever find out if her father had abused her as well or was it somebody else in the family? Did you ever find out who it was? It was the same perpetrator? Yep. Okay. Yep. That, That sounds similar. I went through something similar around age five. Can I ask you, um, How did you end up telling? Like, do you remember the day that you told? The reason I'm asking is because I actually remember the day I told. I sat at the kitchen table, and I felt safe to tell my mom, and I told her, and she called the whole family. It was a big drama. Like, I actually remember the day that I told. So do you remember the day that you told, or do you just remember trying to tell?
1: I just remember trying to tell, and I think it's because nothing was done. And it was just too much much for me as a kid. Right. And I knew that I couldn't do anything about it. I just hated going to their house and, you know, those kinds of things. Like I said, I I have, day there are things like the fact that it is my mother's father and that's all I will call him. Right.
2: Well, it's important. First of all, we want to say sorry that you went through that, that horrific experience. That's very, very difficult. And we want to just commend you for being brave and talking about it. And the reason, you know, to remind everyone, the reason why we do talk about these things is to help raise awareness. You know, this is happening today in somebody's house, it's going to happen right. tomorrow, unfortunately, in somebody's house. And so, you know, asking certain questions, you know, if you don't feel comfortable answering, you can say, oh, I don't feel comfortable, and that's okay, you know, because we, you're being strong for other people by reliving your experience and sharing your story, your testimony, to help somebody else. So right. we can, um, did you ever find that if your siblings experienced any abuse or was it just you?
1: So far as I know, it was just me. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know uh, There may have been cousins um, There was a lot of kids In the family Mm -hmm. Grandkids um, Mm -hmm. And there may have been cousins That were abused as well But I don't know for sure I know Mm -hmm. that as an adult And as a victim advocate now I look back Mm -hmm. And some of the lives of certain family members uh, There are indications There are flags Mm -hmm. That one may have been abused But Mm -hmm. I was never able to ask And so I don't really know Right
2: Um, Mrs. Victoria I know my co-host is on as well I don't know if she has any questions or comment Before we move on to your Musical career For your Mm -hmm. healing part Um, mm -hmm. What were you going to say?
0: Yeah um yeah hi uh carissa um oh. <laughs> to uh hear from you again and uh mm-hmm. i'm really glad that you can make it on the show um i was i'm really glad that i get to be the host tonight with um <laughs> yeah it's good good yeah. talking to you again um yeah i'm uh really excited to hear the rest of your story it's kind of in and out at that event i did and didn't get to hear the whole thing so I'm just going to listen and um yeah also glad that you know you're sharing your story for other people that are out there that uh maybe uh maybe didn't have the support either to be able to tell and uh it is I like how you said it's a generational thing because um yeah we're uh learning a lot about that that you know families it just keeps going and going and going and I know later on the line you put, you know, put a stop to that generational cycle. So I'm going to keep listening. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So now, and thank you for that, Ms. Victoria. That was good. Um, And I'm glad that you did touch on to the fact that it is um, generational for those that are listening so that we can pay attention. You know, a lot of times um, some of us have had a loved one who has, Cross that line and does something abusive to us and we did a nip in the bud. And then a few years go by and another child in the family gets hurt by this same person. And that's one of the reasons why we want to raise awareness on NASCA to make sure that we address these issues so that we can nip things in the bud, right? But Absolutely. the only way we'll know about it is if we talk about it. You know, and a lot of times it's very taboo, very embarrassing, very hurtful, very triggering, and people just can't forget about it. So now, after this happened with this person, the family, did you shut it? Did you just say nobody believed you, or nobody listened, which is very traumatic, very hurtful? What did you do? So now, did you move on from this and just focus on your artistic side? What happened there? How? Sure. Just as much as,
1: right. as much as I could I tried to avoid the situation but when you're a kid you don't have a lot of choice
0: mm-hmm. in the matter
1: uh, I knew when I was five years old that I wanted to be a singer mm. and I immediately was just submerging myself in my music every chance mm. I could get um, like I said I was not raised in a really healthy situation so I didn't have a lot of quote unquote play time for anything mm-hmm. but I started taking each amount of time that I would get mm-hmm. and using that to perfect my music by the time I was eight I was writing my own stuff
2: mm.
1: and I had a few piano lessons and My family were not well off, and so I didn't get any more than maybe about a year's worth of music theory, but I Mm. was writing my own stuff, and it was pure talent, Mm. and got heavily into that. By the time I was 11, I was well on my way, and I was singing with Mm. adult choirs that, some of which uh, sang at the opera house,
2: Mm -hmm. and,
1: you know, getting all kinds of amazing opportunities that the average kid would never, you know, have this opportunity, but the doors just started opening. And Mm -hmm. every door that opened, I walked through. So Mm -hmm. as a teenager, my teenage years were not typical in a lot of ways. Uh, Mm -hmm. I was in school during the day or working around the house most of the time but as I was working around the house, I was working on my music. Mm. So. <laughs> so was music
2: healing to your spirit? Like, what was music to you? Like, how did music you even find music? Music was the thing music? that
1: kept me going. Mm-hmm. Um, there were times that I, even looking back, I don't know how I made it through that, except for the fact that mm-hmm. it was a God-given thing for me that I had my music. And when everything was falling apart, every place else, so I had my music, and that's where I would go, and that's where I would focus. My brother and I have talked about the fact that we sometimes don't know how we survived growing up. Mm-hmm. Because the two of us took the brunt of everything. And we talked about that, and for me, I know that the one thing that kind of kept me sane was my music. Uh, by wow. the time I was in junior high and high school, uh, I was practicing about sixty hours a week, so you know while I was like I said, while I was cleaning the house and doing the the chores that were on my list uh. I was doing my music at the same time, whether that was actual rehearsal time or whether that was running scales or doing other things. I spent a lot of hours just doing music. And eventually well, you're... part of what... No, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was just going to say, eventually part of what happened was um, my parents were involved in a particular church, mm. and I was working with the choir director there and whatnot. I was the, the go-to person. So anytime they needed music for anything, especially if it the last minute, but, uh, I was the go-to person. And they'd give me a call, and they'd say, hey, we have such and such a thing coming up. Can you do this then? And I'd say, sure, just run with it. And so eventually it got to the point where I was allowed out of my house long enough to go up and rehearse for probably about an hour and a half every Sunday. So Mm. there was nobody at the church but me. And I had the whole routine down. I'd go set up the system and turn on the mic and take out the guitar and off I'd go for an hour and a half. Mm. And... That was my intense rehearsal time, but that was only once a week. And typically, if you're involved in that world, you practice more than once a week. But a Mm -hmm. lot of what I had to do, I had to do by improvising. And you do what you got to do, you know? Right.
2: So was your brother, you said, was your brother also
1: musically inclined? (laughs) no my brother is not musically inclined at all and he was actually out of the home Mm. Um, he was acting out because of all of the stuff that was going on he was taken out of the home and then everything was focused on me so my music and my dad's dad my grandpa grandpa cease. Um, who's passed on here 25 years ago. Um, But he lived up on Camino Island and right on the, the water. And that was my safe place. And when he could, he'd come down for a doctor's appointment or whatever other reason he was down for. And a lot of the time when I was a kid, he would stop at the house and he'd basically say, pack your bags, you're coming with me. And um, I would go up and spend a week with him and my grandma Nellie. And it was, that was the bright spot. You know, yeah. I had my music and I had my grandpa. And those were the things I believe that enabled me to stay alive. And I lost Grandma Nelly when I was eight. Um, in doing the competition stuff that I do, as you know, I am Miss Classic Beauties International, and I started out a I won my country title, uh, which was for mm-hmm. Sweden, and my Grandma Nelly was Scandinavian, and I grew up hearing. When I was up at Grandma Nelly and her friend Ada, when I was up with them, I grew up hearing Swedish, spoken, and I had forgotten all about that. (laughs) And when the pandemic hit, um, for the fun of it, I started studying Swedish. And I went, I probably won't get this, and... That's okay, but I want to try this. I so started trying it, and I was shocked. Like, <laughs> I can't even express how surprised, because as I started learning it, things started coming back. And a lot of it is stuff where sometimes I don't even know what I'm saying, uh, and there'll be a long phrase, and I'll go, "Oh there's no way I can get this, but I'll try and I will get it right. And I looked at my daughter one night and I said, watch this. And I went through a whole bunch of stuff. And I said, I don't even know what I'm saying, but I'm getting these right. How is that happening? And it was yeah. because I remember as a kid praying when I lost my grandma Nellie and, and basically just saying, um, I don't want to forget her. Help me to remember this language. Help me to remember her. And I was never allowed to tell her goodbye. Um, I was at home with my parents when she passed. And they called me into the bedroom, and they said that she had died. And that was it. Uh, They went to the funeral. I did not. I had no chance to say goodbye. And basically, she was never spoken about, really. And we had a big thing because um, Grandpa and Grandma both had um, matching personalized coffee mugs at the house, at their place. And we used to go up there for dinner about once a week. And um, it was usually on Sunday. That was our day. And we'd go up there, and I was usually the one who was setting the table. And I remember one huge fight we had, and um, someone else had come into and stepped into the role of step-grandma, basically. And she was a nice person. She just was not my grandma. And anyway, I remember getting into a big fuss over the whole thing and basically saying, You are not my grandma. You will not use her coccyx. That's not yours. It's hers. And my parents were fit to be tied. And the the funny story is when um, my grandpa did remarry and when he did, um, when he married um, Anita, they took me on their honeymoon. He
2: took you on the honeymoon?
1: Yeah. (laughs) But it was because he knew that he needed to get that relationship straightened out. Right. And so he did what it took. I had that on one side, and on the other side, I had just nothing behind it. So um, it was Grandpa Cecil who really... You know, as far as the humans in my life, it was Grandpa Sisa who kept me sane until I was in my twenties. So. Mm-hmm. so that's that's
2: that was your strong your your strength. They were love.
1: Yeah, they showed you love. That was beautiful. Yes, absolutely, and and that was like I said, the the thing that kept me sane through everything else. Because when I was at home, it was. A nightmare. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. was just bad. And there's no putting it gently or sweetly in a lot of cases. Um, right. As an adult, I have a pretty good understanding of where they were coming from and why, which explains it. But explaining it is not the same as excusing it. There is no excuse. Mm. Right. And, You know, I have to deal with my own life, and I went to extensive counseling, and I've done what I can do, because the buck does stop here. I'm not going to allow that to continue, and my daughter and I have built a very strong relationship that is positive, and it's because I worked my tail off to make sure that I was not going to repeat the pattern. And I had tried to not repeat the pattern anyway because being involved with my music was the perfect excuse to not get in a relationship. And so I avoided getting into a relationship until I was 28 because I did not want to repeat what I considered was a cycle because I could see that it went back generations in the family Mm. and I didn't know how to deal with that so I figured the next best thing was going to be to avoid getting in a relationship and I did that very successfully using my music uh, until I was 28 and after going through what I went through with Charles Rodman Campbell and knowing I could have died and everything else, it basically brought everything to a screeching halt. And the music career got stuck on what I thought was going to be a temporary hold because I had to deal with the rape and the physical abuse and the stalking. And so tell was, yeah,
2: how... I, I saw that in in your bio, and um, one thing I wanted to say before we went into the stalking part, Victoria did bring out that generational cycle Victoria, did you want mm-hmm. to make a comment, or did you want to um, make a have a question or a comment?
0: No, I'll I'll keep listening. You okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. yeah, because yeah, cause
2: I remember I know Victoria brought a really good point about that, and you brought that up again, and. For anyone listening, this is something that happens generationally and that, again, it needs to be addressed. Um, I know your story, number one, we don't have enough time for your story, Miss Clarissa, because I know your story can go very deep and it has so many different moving parts. But I wanted you to talk a little bit about you know, I know you were deep in music, and that was your and grace, and that's where you poured, and that's where you healed, and that was beautiful and all, but stop! How did this person come to stalk you in your safe space? Where did this person come from? Who is this person? What happened?
1: Sure. This was a total stranger I had never met before in my life. Um, I was actually... On my way to rehearsal with one of the big choirs that I worked with, one of my mentors was the director. And I mm-hmm. was on my way into church, and this six-foot, I don't know, I think he about, was about six five, six six, big guy, um, was in the middle of the hallway. Would not allow me to pass, and I kept trying to go around him three times to go around him because I didn't want anything to do with him. The guy gave off the yuckiest vibe that I've ever felt in my entire life. It was bad. And so my reaction was to get away from him immediately. And no matter what I did, he would block me so I couldn't get through. Hmm. And Finally, he asked me a question, and I don't even remember what the question was. And being trained from the time I was very young to always be a good girl, always be polite, always answer questions, do everything just right, I responded to his question, and then I booked. I all but ran into the sanctuary for rehearsal. And I thought he had left. Um, He hung out. And he waited three hours for me to get out of rehearsal, and I did not know it. Followed me to my car, and I was exhausted and didn't realize what was going on. Mm -hmm. I got in my car and drove home. Got in my house, put the keys down on the counter, and just as fast as I did that, there was a knock at my door. And my door did not have a peephole. I will never live in another place that does not for uh, mm. the rest of my life. It's a really important tool, but we have to use it. And in my case, what happened was uh, I, when I heard the knock at the door, I'm thinking, who the heck is that? And without really thinking twice, crack and blocked it with my foot to find out Mm. who was there and he pushed the door in and just broke into my place and wound up holding me prisoner for about three and a half hours Mm. and I knew who it was when I saw him I would never have allowed him in a million years in my house If I'd been smart enough to realize that you don't open the door unless you know who's there and you're okay with that, I would never have opened the door. The way the laws were written in Washington State at that point in time, if you opened the door, it didn't matter that it was only a half an inch. You had invited him in. Wow. And I told the cops later, I said, I did not invite him in. I did not want him there. I did not ask him to come there. Hmm. He just showed up. They said, it doesn't matter the way the law is in Washington. You can't prosecute him. Okay. And so um, my little information only, I'm sure, disappeared very rapidly. And... He, a few months later, went back to a prior victim, and she had testified against him in court. So the fact that I could not prosecute him, I believe that saved my life. She testified against him in court along with her neighbor, who was her best friend, and her daughter, who was a baby at the time, had been held at knife point. Um, It was a bad situation and it went from bad to worse because when he got out on work release, first thing he did was he attacked me and dad was with me when I met with police and my dad actually also talked to his parole officer and the parole officer told my dad, he said, I'm not even surprised. This is a bad dude. And, you know. He's just going to keep doing what he does, kind of a thing. And there was nothing I could do about it. So I immediately, after I got out of my situation um, of immediate jeopardy, he tossed me across the room. I hit my head on the corner of my couch, bruised myself. It was pretty bad. Anyway, um, got out of that three-ish in the morning, uh, mm-hmm. locked my door, and um, called my dad, and he and my mom showed up, and they took me to their house, which was a really good thing, and I went back only to pack my stuff and get out of that place, mm-hmm. and stayed with my parents for about six months, which was not a great situation. That's was a whole lot better than dealing with the stalker. And it was during that time that he then went back to his former victim, uh, Renee Wickland, and um, cold-bloodedly murdered her, her best friend Barbara, and Shana, um, her little daughter, who, because the original crime had happened and he'd been imprisoned when he got out of prison and went into work release, By then, Shana was about seven. And all three of them were killed in cold blood.
2: So wait a minute. This is your stalker? Mm-hmm. He that sure he is. He went to somebody else after you got away
1: and so learned He went back this? to someone else. He had actually raped her first. Mm-hmm. And... She testified against him in jail and put him in jail. Um, he actually went to prison. He was in prison for, I think, seven years. Something like that. Um, they did not know that um, – Renee did not know. He had been charged with two felonies. Mm-hmm. And his sentences went together instead of seven years and seven years. It was just seven years. Mm-hmm. which never should have been. But anyway, um, there's a lot of things that they totally did wrong with this whole huge mess. Yeah. That was one. She was not notified before he was released. Just so she had no idea that he was in work release, which he never should have been in work release either. Yeah. Um, I could tell you all kinds of things that you don't want to know, but that were bad there. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, She did not have any clue that he was in work release. And he went back to her and like I said then got his revenge. And thankfully when I moved out of my parents' place maybe six months into everything, about the time that all that was going down I moved out and I moved into a basement apartment. Um, My landlord was a former cop, and he had a state-of-the-art, at that point, uh, security system. Mm. I mean, I was in the safest possible situation I could be in at that moment in time. Yeah, Um, I I think that was meant to be that way because that was what I needed at that point. Yes. Uh, I think that's probably what saved my life.
2: How did you feel, I mean, getting the news, I'm sure horrific, just no words I can use to describe. How did you feel you got the news that he came out and he murdered the other,
1: those people? It was horrifying. It was absolutely horrifying. I had gone down, one of my other music mentors, um, who has since passed on, but she was, at the time, she was living in California. And, was kind of my substitute mom (laughs) and I called her and told her what was going down and she said I'm sending you a plane ticket right now you're coming down here and I hopped Mm -hmm. the plane and went down and I spent some time down in California and that was the first place where I felt safe
2: Mm -hmm. and
1: she had a German trained attack dog Mm
2: -hmm.
1: who one of the things that happened when I went in the house and she introduced me and she said, he will fight for the death for you. You Mm -hmm. are safe here. And when she was away during the day, because she was teaching at a um, school, she taught music. And when she was away during the day and um, the kids weren't home, I was there with the dog. Mm -hmm. But I was fine with that time and I realized it was because the dog was there, and I knew I was safe. And once again, she had a great security system. I found out later she had also been a victim of domestic violence, and that's why she had the dog. Right. Who's so, um, um, this guy. Like, what happened to him after this? I'm sorry. And they figured out pretty rapidly that he was the one who had committed the triple murder. And, of course, arrested him again, charged him. He was um, found guilty. And if you look him up, which you can do in anything from Murderpedia to God knows, um, but if you look him up, you will find out that he was executed um, May 7th. Pardon me. Yeah. May 27th. Um, 1994. And the reason I know that exact date, I was pregnant with my daughter, who was my miracle. I wasn't supposed to be able to have kids. Mm-hmm. And my due date was May 28th.
2: Mm-hmm. And he
1: was executed the night before. And it was like, all mm-hmm. of a sudden, I realized that I was safe. And so was my daughter. Mm-hmm. Um You know, my child would not be harmed right? because he's gone. And, you know, we can say all we want about the death penalty and how Mm -hmm. it's a horrible thing. Well, you know what? He did a heck of a lot of horrible things. His mother turned her back on him. Um, Everybody walked away from this guy. And if you didn't walk away from the guy, um, that's when you've got in real big trouble. Yeah, you could be next. Yeah, yeah. And we know that there were those three murders, but there are many others that are suspected that have, nobody has, you know, oh. dug into. Right. People like that,
2: um, a lot of times when they start doing things at that level, they've gotten away with so much that people don't realize how horrible, how cold-blooded they yeah. are, and they just never got caught. Um, Ms. Victoria, I just want to open up and bring my sister in, just in case she has any comments. I know I'm, I'm mm-hmm. sure. I don't know if she's probably heard the story already, and but I'm sure every time you hear the story, it's like, wow, people are so sick.
0: Yeah. You know. Yeah, I I just, I can comprehend the um the yeah. relief um my biological father yeah. when um he was getting prosecuted, my uh, mom went in and kind of gave his history, you know. And uh anyway, um you know, they told me the only difference between you and everybody else is you told everybody else is still on the run from him, you know.
1: And uh
0: right. yeah, I, I was fear fearful he threatened that, you know. He would he would oh, uh, get me and put in the basement and keep me as a prisoner because I was already he had already been through being a sexual slave and uh, so I was scared to death and I had a six month old daughter when I escaped and um, mm-hmm. I just found out three years ago now my daughter just turned 40, party and three years ago I found nope. out that um, he had died and you no. know some people are like, oh did you have a party or did you celebrate or was that or what nothing I said. All I could do is felt a relief, just yep. a huge relief of freedom, freedom, yeah. and I didn't have to worry mm-hmm. about my after my daughter, my son, you know, right. um, because yeah, people, people don't understand, and, and you know, then people want to jump to forgiveness and this that, and I'm, you know what? He's gone, he's out of life, and I thank my higher power for that, that I don't have to yeah. throw around my shoulder anymore. You know, I breathe. I can finally breathe. And uh, um, so I can totally uh, to. we're gone. Uh Mm -hmm. Because you've been very long that, like, I could come back at any moment. You just don't know, and you you have your child. And, you know, um, just to know that they're gone and they can't, can't hurt your children. Because, you know, they told me he's been abusing men, women, and children all his life. You know? And and, wow. uh, and 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 then I get the question of, you know, why would you do that to you? I'm like yeah. I had a flow. I spent years trying to figure out why you never focused on my healing, you know. <laughs> yeah. A lot of times
2: I feel guilty for feeling the relief but I understand uh-huh. and there's not- wrong with that feeling because if you haven't been tortured and abused and attacked at that level, you won't really understand. But just, I mean, think about it. He went to jail, he came out, and he went back after the victim to finish where he started at a higher Mm -hmm. level. He didn't just come after her. He killed Mm -hmm. three people. Okay. Mind you. So if he would have went to jail for another 10 years and came out or 15 Mm -hmm. years, who's to Mm -hmm. say that you can rest? Yeah. Yeah. And then the fact that he was out and nobody was notified. None of his victims were notified crazy. that he yeah. was out
0: on work, whatever, period. You have an order for protection against him. I go, the man's That's a criminal. Right. You think he cares about an order for protection? They don't care <laughs> about an no order for protection. <laughs> people. They don't get it. Paper. They don't care about that. <laughs> uh, yeah. They don't care and about then, paper. you know he was court ordered to therapy and then i found out that he went into he was going to the sexual abusers group uh, through one door through the next door right next to it um better women were going in there so guess where he finds his next wife and and i found out they had a child so i called child protection you know and they said yeah. they called me back said don't worry about it it's a boy i said she don't care oh
1: my god and they would
0: not just do anything so yeah so like you said we don't know all the things that well, did.
1: Well, and the reason, one of the things that came out of Renee and Barbara and Shana's death was uh-huh. the fact that there was notific- no notification. And so that's where the Vine program came from. Okay. That is supposed to notify victims. That came right. about as a result of uh-huh. Renee and Barbara and Shana's death.
0: And what year? But, what, what year did that? Did both take place? Just trying don't to figure know. out. I, not, yeah. Well, out. I don't really
1: remember. I, it was. Yeah. Nineteen eighty something.
0: But okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's taken me all of this time. I had to work through my own domestic violence situation before I could even get to this. Right. To begin to work on it. To begin to then mm-hmm. talk about it.
0: Yeah, because then well um, let you go on. Because I want to pick up all the time. Mhm. Yeah, because you got into and another relationship then, or let's continue with where you were at. With the sure. After
1: after all sure. that happened, yeah.
0: I'm well, listen, after thanks. I
1: lost my music, I lost my music. Um, I had a, a car accident um, some months after mm. uh, going through the whole. Thing with Campbell, and I very nearly died. I was mm-hmm. driving my little Mustang 2 1 home from my day job, mm-hmm. and I was about less than a mile from home, and some girl driving a full-size pickup truck behind me, had a fight with her boyfriend, took his keys, took his brand-new truck. And my little Mustang, the entire back end of that little car was light. And it was January 3rd, um, late at night. Uh, Actually, it was probably 7-ish, but um, late enough to where it was dark. But the entire back end of my car was light. And I was getting ready to take a left, get ready to turn to go down the hill and go into my safe house Um, and so I had stopped and had signaled and this truck came barreling up the hill at 45 miles an hour in a 35 mile an hour zone supposedly didn't see any of the lights on my car and just plowed into me before she even hit the brakes And I had been stopped, and there was actually a car in front of me that was had signaled and was turning left. And I had been stopped behind them, and I had thought about going around them at the time, and I just kind of went, eh, I may as well wait. No big deal. (laughs) This was one time when I should have not second-guessed myself. I should have just gone around. But um, she was in a full-size Oldsmobile in front of me. So I was shoved forward into the Oldsmobile and sideways into oncoming traffic by this humongous truck. And the only warning I had was a flash of color and lights in my rearview mirror as she was hitting me. So um, eventually when the car came to a stop and you know, people started showing up out there. I was thinking, well, I need to stay with my car until um, the police get here, and, you know, I can deal with it. And they said, no, you've got to get out. You need to get out right now. There is gasoline going all over the road. You've got to get out. And so eventually they talked me into getting out, and um, paramedics got there, and I spent uh, about 12 hours at the hospital. I'm um, trying to get x-rays to find out if I had broken my back or not. I mean, I got really smacked. Um, And like I said, it was a full-size pickup in my little Mustang. So it was bad. And I don't realize how bad until later on when I was looking at pictures. And <laughs> it was really interesting because the passenger side of the car, the seat had been shoved clear up almost to uh, my glove box. And on the driver's side, and we don't know why, but on the driver's side, there was just enough room for me. And I was able to get out, but it really did a major number on my body. And so I was in physical therapy, and I was doing a bunch of other stuff to try and figure out what was going on with my body. And they discovered that I had degenerative bone disease in my jaws, and so I was not allowed to sing for at least five years. I was a classically trained lyric soprano, and my day job was just paying my rent until I went full time, and it wasn't even the idea of losing the music that was most painful. It was the fact that that was how I communicated with everybody, was through my music. Really? I was—I I don't know quite how to explain this. I was nobody until I got on the stage. When I got on stage, and to this day, when a microphone finds me and my daughter giggles about it because she says, I swear you have some kind of magnet that just draws them because we'll be out doing something and there'll be a reporter doing a story and the next thing I know there's a microphone in my face it just happens (laughs) but it's because it's meant to be and that's what I believe to the whole thing but when I lost the ability to do my music I lost my reason for being because from the time I was tiny that was what kept me sane I can remember and I was a victim in school as well as at home of bullying and abuse And while kids were out playing on the playground, I was the kid who was out in the very far corner off singing to myself. That was how I coped. I had no friends and that was it. And to lose that was worse than losing the ability to speak in some ways. Because when it comes to my music, I communicate on a, deeper level in different ways than I'm able to communicate in everyday language. So that was, that was tough. And I went through quite a few years of being suicidal and between the losing the music and having one of the most painful Um, medical conditions that you can have. Um, The type of pain that I deal with is 10 times the normal amount of pain, and it never goes away, and the stuff never heals because one injury irritates the other injury, Mm. and it all works together in a not nice way. And, you know, until I found broadcasting... I felt like I had no reason for still being here, and I used to wonder why I was still here. Because Mm -hmm. it was obvious that my purpose was over with, and I was done, so Mm -hmm. why was I still here? Mm -hmm. And I went to broadcast school and started realizing I could use the mic in a different way. Mm -hmm. Started working on that, and... Did that for a little while, but until going through the domestic violence and having to go underground. So, so
2: now, um, you know, and there's again a lot of different parts, and so we're only gonna be able to touch a couple of things. Um, this domestic violence situation that you answered. How did you meet
1: him? Again, like, who was this person? Sure. Um, This was someone I met when I was at my lowest. I mentioned the fact that I'd been suicidal. Um, Mm -hmm. At the time that I was suicidal, I was renting a room in a house with some friends. And I got myself a little dog. And his name was Ace was a beautiful golden cocker spaniel, and when I got him, he would fit in my two hands. So he was only about between four and five weeks old. Technically, too early to get. And yes, he was a backyard breeding situation, um, <clears throat> but I didn't know this at the time. I um, he kept me alive, kept me going. He had major health problems. Turned out he had a thing called portal cable shunt in which the blood routes around the liver instead of going through. So the toxins don't get cleaned out of the bloodstream and they go into seizure. And when he was about nine months old on a Sunday night, late in the evening, he went into a seizure the first time. And it was a full fledged grandma. And I thought I was watching him die. Hmm. And I got through the moment and got him into a vet, and the vet said, well, he probably has epilepsy, and I wasn't going to let it go with, he probably has, and so I talked to the head of the um, Washington State AKC, who also had cockers, and he said, you need to go to this vet over here, this is where I'd take him, this is where i take my dog. And with something like this, what they'll do is they'll sit down, they have a big round table, and there's about 12 vets there. And they'll sit down and they'll figure it out. I said, that's what I need. So that's why I took him. Well, we discovered it was the last thing on the list. And portal cable shunt is not something that you just get over. Um, At the time, they were just starting to do experimental surgery whereby they uh, did a liver replacement and, uh, you know, do the whole transplant route. I did not know at that point in time that that was a possibility. Found out later that the vet school in my state would have done it. If I donated the dog, they would do it, and they donate the dog back to me. But I didn't know that then, and I wound up losing him. But, um when I lost him, he died in my arms, mm-hmm. and I was a total basket case um, for weeks afterwards, and that was the point at which I met my now ex-husband,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that's the lowest possible place I could be in a lot of ways. And, you know, he took advantage of that and took advantage of me. And it was a very different situation. When I was growing up, the abuse was right out there in the open. (laughs) The neighbors were, I was told later, three blocks around me knew what was going on. They did nothing, but they knew what was going on in my house. In this Mm -hmm. case, when I got with my now husband, um, it was opposite. Everything looked letter perfect from the outside. So perfect that when my daughter was three years old and I decided I needed to do something to find a life because I had no life outside of the house at all at that point to try and do some self-care, <laughs> I decided that I would do, I was actually, when I found it, I was looking for college money for my daughter because she's gifted. And (laughs) I'm not wealthy. (laughs) And I knew we were going to need all the help we could get. And so I went looking. And then when I found this pageant, I talked to a uh, person who was very knowledgeable in that area. And he said, yeah, they have pageants for your age. And I said, oh, not like me, you know. And, Oh, yes, they do. And he proceeded to show me that, yes, they did. And I was awarded my first uh, state at-large title. And two weeks after winning that, first two things happened. I got to go and meet the governor of my state. And this beautiful picture comes out, cover. Of the second largest um, paper in the state, and it has my story of surviving the car accident, and you know, talks about meeting with the governor, and they had a really cute picture too with my little three-year-old daughter giving the governor a high five, and so letter perfect, right? Within ten days, I had to leave my home because of domestic violence, and I went into hiding and shelter. And I had to call my director from shelter and say, I won't be making it to nationals, and this is why. And it was all hidden. It was all covert. It was the opposite of what I'd grown up with. That's why I didn't recognize it until it was almost too late. The only reason I recognized it was because my ex husband was taking my daughter and disappearing for three or more days at a time not telling me where they were going, not answering his cell phone. And I was just supposed to take it. Mm -hmm. And then he tried to order me out of my own home. And that was the final straw. And I had talked to a friend um, who was a cop. Uh, The last time he had taken her and been gone for more than three days, I called the crisis clinic and then I called my friend who was a cop. And my friend said you need to know this you are dealing with domestic violence and if you don't get out at the very least you're going to lose her you'll never see her again Mm. I almost died having my daughter I spent almost all of nine months flat on my back in bed on tributaline which they don't even get out anymore but to try and keep me from going into active labor which was Happening on a regular basis, um, I was being, you know, watched at the hospital five to seven days a week. I was mm-hmm. admitted twelve times before I had her. I almost died having her. There was no way in hell that I was going to allow my ex-husband to take my daughter from me. Mm. And that's when I circled the day on the calendar and did not write anything there, just circled it in red, and started putting stuff away that I could put away. And I actually stopped cleaning my house for the most part because I didn't want him to know that anything was missing. weren't. Right. And I spent 10 days getting ready, and he had been... Disappearing for days at a time He was going to uh, live with his girlfriend During that time I found this out later But I had a hunch And the morning of um, I was getting ready And he showed up uh, Almost like he knew Something was going on And my daughter had um, We took her to a preschool co-op. So she went to college from the time she was six months old. It was kind of a family joke. Oh. Um, <laughs> um, she had a wonderful time and her teacher, teacher Darcy was amazing. And mm. so I went, okay, this is the way we play it. And so I just went with it and he picked us up and he took us to her school. And while we were at the school, he was not around. And I talked to teacher Darcy on the fly. And I said, we're leaving today. This is what's going on. And she was so quick to get it. And she immediately, she looked at me and she kind of smiled. And she, in a very loud voice for the rest of the class to hear because I was helping out that day that parents had days that we came in and helped out and whatnot. She said to everybody, they were making GAC. And then she looked at me and she said, hopefully this will help with the stress. <laughs> and It is GAC. And it is. It's a great stress reliever just because you work it with your hands and it, it does help with that. And She was just such a sweetheart. So at the end of class comes and guess who shows back up. And I'm trying really hard not to freak out at that point in time. And just keep playing with it, keep doing what I got to do, because I know my life depends on making this work. So he takes us out to lunch, go to this pizza place, and I have never tasted pizza that tasted more like cardboard in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just sat like a rock in my stomach because I couldn't, you know, tolerate eating, but I had to eat And then he dropped us off at the house and supposedly drove away, but I knew not to trust that he was gone for good. And I did what I could do around the house for a few minutes, praying he would not come back. I went to a neighbor's house and I dropped my daughter off at the neighbor's and I said, can you keep an eye on her for a little bit? I have some stuff I have to do. I said, oh, sure. I said, please do not give him, do not give her to um, my husband. No matter what, don't give it to him. Mm. And went back in my house and (laughs) I was taking, disassembling my stereo. I was the one with the fancy stereo in the family. And it was a doozy. And it was a complex thing, had a lot of stuff to it. And, so I was taking undoing components and doing what I needed to do while I was talking to 911. I said, I need a standby. I'm getting out. Oh, well, we don't have anybody available right now. So we're, we're just going to keep you on the phone. I said, "Oh, okay. He could come back at any time, and he has a history of doing so, but here's the deal, you know. So eventually I got everything unhooked and on everything else. Um, the phone uh, caught a cab over to a storage place. Stuffed what I could in storage of what I kn- knew I would want. Um, the sad part is I lost everything in storage, but that's a whole other thing. Victims who survive out of the situation and we come out in pieces Mm -hmm. and it's so hard because we try to heal and the system is set up in a way further abuses us and that's part of what happened with my stuff in storage um, because he knew we were leaving a bad situation he knew what was in that storage you watched me put the stuff in there and then supposedly auctioned things off. Sure. Um, tried to say I was late turning in a payment. I still don't believe that. Um, but at the time, I had too much else going on to be able to go back and prove it. And as a result, basically pretty much lost it all. Um, once I got everything into storage, I came back, picked my daughter up, um, put her in the front of the double stroller. Um, and I had spent a week, over a week actually, trying to find a temporary foster situation for our two retired racing greyhounds. Could not find one anywhere. They were not to be had. Um but drove the stroller out the door, locked it the last time. I <laughs> sat there as I was locking the door. I remember thinking, how do I explain to a three-year-old what we're going to do? And I looked at her, and she remembers this moment. <laughs> it's the kind of cool thing. She's now 28. She remembers this moment. I looked at her, and I said, honey, we're going on an adventure. I don't know where we'll be or what we'll do, but you will be safe. I promise you. Mm. And we walked out the door. And went about three quarters of a mile (laughs) down to uh, what was then the transit center Mm -hmm. and got there just after the bus left. And We were going to a bad part of town because we had to meet somebody um, to get to the confidential shelter that we didn't know where it was. But we had to go through a bad part of town to get there. The buses only ran once an hour, and it was getting dark. Hmm. And I went, who do I know? Who can I call? And Darcy had given me her phone number that day and I called her and I told her what was going on and she says where are you I told her she says just a second she talks to her husband for about two seconds she says hold on we're coming to get you we'll be there in a couple minutes Hmm. and they came and they got us for the moment took us where we needed to go so that we could meet up with the person we needed to meet turns out they had given our shelter space away. Um, somebody had been horribly physically abused, and they gave it away to somebody who had to go in the hospital and get patched up and now needed a spot. So we spent three days um, in a hotel. And at the end of the three days, we... We're about to be cut loose, and I knew we could not go back home. And I called one of my cousins who was, I mentioned Grandpa Cease earlier. Grandpa had died nine months before all this went down. And I hadn't seen my cousin for years, and she was a wonderful friend. And we talked a little bit, and I had taken down her phone number. And once again, spur of the moment, I call her up. She says, where are you at? We'll come and get you. And they came and got us. And we spent 10 days with her until we got into shelter. Mm. And it, it's just been a journey. You know, this whole thing has been kind of a horrific journey. Uh, They had high moments and low moments, they always do, but I'm grateful for every single one of the helpers that was there for us and to this day is there for us Mm -hmm. when we need help, when we need support. And with the work that I now do, I try very hard to be that same kind of support that we needed and at that point didn't have because there was nothing like what there is now.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So in a way that helps to heal too. You know, it's a
2: process. It does. You know, it's a blessing that you are able to take all your experiences, your pain, your recovery, your, just your story and help others with it. I know you, are also into advocacy work. And I know we're getting towards the end of the show. And I wanted you to just talk a little bit about that, you know, the work now, yeah. how Your pain into purpose, right? And you're able to yeah. give back yeah. up, given to you by by some.
1: You had a few angels along your journey. Oh, definitely, definitely. And my husband has always been proud of the fact that um, – he holds a grudge forever.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I found out the reality of that more than once. Um, and it's been almost 13 years now. Um, we found out that he was in our area. And he wasn't supposed to know where we were. Um we're part of a program called Address Confidentiality that protects domestic violence survivors and survivors. Of. And yeah. so he wasn't supposed to know where we were. He never picked us up at the house. We always met him in a public place to do, quote, unquote, mm-hmm. visitation when we did it before he tried driving us into Puget Sound. Um, but he wasn't supposed to know where we were, and yet there he was. And so we wound up, how, I didn't know how I was going to deal with this, but I had to figure it out. And how was I going to leave? What was I going to do? And I got online, which <laughs> I had avoided doing. My ex is a computer genius. He mm. used to work mm. for Microsoft, amongst other places. Um, and so I, for a long time, avoided being online. I knew, I watched him hack into stuff that was supposedly unhackable so I knew he could do it and I didn't want him finding it but after all this I went okay, so we used slow dial up at that point and I unplugged the cord from the wall as soon as I'm done <laughs> so that's what I did and I got online and I looked up I googled Online Domestic Violence Support. Mm. And found a, what was then, a brand new Mm. online forum for victims and survivors on a website that no longer exists called Cafe Mom. Cafe Mom used to be very similar to what Facebook is. So not only did you have the profiles, you could play games, you also had these wonderful forums. And I got into a brand new forum that had less than 20 people in it. That it, nothing had just started. And the first message that I read was from a woman who said, I am terrified. I know my husband's going to kill me. Mm-hmm. I'm equally terrified to go into shelter. I know this is what I need to do. But is there somebody out there who's been through this, who can demystify the process so I can do what I need to do? That was the first thing I read. And I immediately started to change myself. I'm pretty new here. I don't know anything. So I started surfing all around the um, area there to find out what else was in the forum and kind of how it worked. Mm -hmm. And I looked around for about 20 minutes, and after 20 minutes, I literally remember the moment that my life changed. My fingers hit the keyboard, and I said, I'm in. And I answered one message to one person, and one message turned into literally and for the 12 years, we worked with literally, from what we can tell, there was well over 12,000 women on that site. But I either worked with, wow. and each of those 12 women had at least one kid. So, in some cases, one Thanks. that I can... Remember there were seven kids but <laughs> the amount of people that were impacted by that still goes away.
2: That's amazing. At the time
1: that we started doing what we do were doing, no one was doing it. And I only found that out because <laughs> I was going, I must be crazy. I need to find somebody else who's doing this That's amazing. <laughs> so that I could
2: feel Definitely. not so alone. <laughs> so we have we have Two minutes, but I want to make sure that for anybody who's listening, if you can just let us know, how can we find you? How can we get a hold of you? Because yes. the show ends in about two minutes. I want to make sure you get that in. Yes. yes, absolutely. Yes.
1: My website is in the process of being updated. It's going to look like it's in process. Email is active. You can reach me at parissa at com. And we're hoping we can have the whole site up there soon. But the email is active. Please send me an email if you have questions. If you want to know how to help, for whatever reason, please feel free to get in touch. I would love
2: to talk with you. Thank you. Do you have a Facebook page? We're about to get off now. I do. Uh,
1: you okay. can find me, Carissa Alexandra, or you can find me at Ms, That's Ms. Classic Beauties. International, and that's also on Facebook.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you for sharing your story with us. Thank you for your testimony. We really appreciate you. Can't wait to we have you come back.
0: Seconds, you. Yeah. we got 18 seconds.
2: Perfect. Happy to well, help. Thank, you. <laughs> thank you very much. Have a good night, Miss Clarissa. Thank you for everything.
1: Thank you. Good night now.
2: Good night. And remember, if you see something, say something. Join us on NASCAS show.
0: Thank you.